1: Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to bring back to the show uh, my friend Josh Hammer. He is uh, one of the uh, great conservative intellectuals of our time. And uh, really, you know, if if you'll take it the right way, a great intellectual pugilist uh, as well. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek. He is the host of his own podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, and a syndicated columnist. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for joining us.
2: Seth, as usual, I never know if I will be able to live up to that incredibly. <laughs> you, always you, you, so to it, so, you always do you live up to it, you
1: do, and you surpass it i wanted I invited you on to talk about an an interesting um, uh, essay and speech uh, you are responsible for a speech you gave a couple ma- months back that was revived uh, in a debate about common good originalism uh having to do with supreme Court or or, or you know legal jurisprudence. And I want to start with that, and then I want to get to a couple more contemporary uh, issues, too, that you have been writing about and speaking about having to do with the Anti-Defamation League, and I want to talk about this Twitter, these uh, revelations about Twitter's shadow banning. But first, uh, you and I, Josh, uh, have, uh, have been trained perhaps a little differently than others when it comes to understanding jurisprudence and originalism. You have uh, been responsible for a phrase, common good, Originalism. Uh, your speech and essay on it, Common Good Originalism, after Dobbs, is available at the American Mind, a publication of the Claremont Institute. Tell us what we're talking about here with Common Good Originalism.
2: Sure. So this whole debate was kind of given a boost with a long essay out this morning at Politico from a reporter named Ian Ward. I thought Ian did a good job mm-hmm. with that essay. I would mm-hmm. actually, yeah. I, I think, I thought it was very fair. Actually, I would mm-hmm. encourage the listeners of your program to go ahead and check it out. And I had spoken with Ian at length over the phone about this. Some of our mutual friends, Seth Hadley Arcees and Garrett Snedeker from the James Wolfe Institute, they also spoke with Ian about this. And what Ian was trying to do in this essay was he was there in person for a conference at Harvard Law School that I participated in and which Professor Adrian Vermeule of Harvard Law School participated in. It was a symposium on common good constitutionalism, which is actually it's going to be a little confusing, it's actually distinct from what I call common good originalism. Right. Common good constitutionalism was a, it was and continues to be a, a proposal from Professor Vermeule, really kind of a an overt kind of reassertion of what uh, Adrian refers to it as the classical legal tradition, mm-hmm. very heavy on the natural law, very heavy on the Roman law, kind of has a fairly distinct kind of Catholic bent to it, because that, you know, that is Adrian's personal persuasion. And I initially proposed what I call common good originalism. I initially proposed it at Claremont's American Mindside. They've been generous enough to run a bunch of my commentaries on this issue. And what i tried to do in common good originalism, which reached its longest form for the listeners who really kind of enjoy this kind of thing a lot in a very lengthy essay for the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy oh, in June 2021, great. and it's really my way of trying to split the baby, of trying to kind of take a lot of this moralistic impulse, this, this understanding that, as Alexander Hamilton says in the first line of Federalist 31, that it is impossible to have legal reasoning uh, when that reasoning is absent anchoring truth, that yep. all sorts of, kind of subsequent disquisitions have to be kind of based in something, rooted in some sense of teleology of mankind. Some kind of some first
1: sense. principle, I think he says, yes?
2: Exactly, yep. exactly. First principle, as Hadley calls it, anchoring truth. Right. And common good originalism is my way of trying to take a lot of this and trying to keep it within the pre-existing framework and paradigms that the originalist academy has been. Operating off of for the past 30, 40 years or so. And, you know, I, I guess I take a view of originalism where this kind of moralistic impulse, this sense of transcendent order and natural justice, I think it's compatible with originalism. I think there are some folks, uh, kind of in the more Anton Scalia model, who would say perhaps not. Anthony Scalia famously sparred against the late Harry Jaffa of Claremont uh, about this issue time and time again. So I I take a broader view of originalism, that's how I allow it to be within the confines of originalism. And, you know, again, I thought Ian Ward of Politico did a really nice job Mm -hmm. in this long essay out this morning, kind of summarizing Adrian's views, summarizing my Mm views, summarizing Hadley's views, and kind of just... Setting the scene for what has been and will hopefully continue to be a very interesting right-of-center jurisprudential debate.
1: We were talking, uh, Josh, a little bit on the show earlier this week on the oral argument that took place, I believe it was Monday, the case, the 303 case out, out of Colorado. Uh, a first amendment uh, case, whether you think about it as speech, whether you think about it as religious liberty? This is a woman who, because of her faith, did not want to do web designs uh, to promote uh, same sex marriages uh, She of course uh, would serve uh, and do websites for anyone of any sexual orientation, but because of her fr- her conscience she could not she could not lend her art shall we say her her artwork to to creating um, same-sex marriage uh, websites. Uh, how would something like Common Good Originalism look at that kind of case?
2: So when we're talking here about speech and, you know, the, the ABF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which, you know, based right there in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. wonderful wonderful organization. They're the ones who are litigating this. Christian yep. Wagoner yep. was the lawyer who argued from the court this past Monday. So they're arguing this actually as a straightforward free speech compelled speech doctrine right. case. So doctrinally, they're actually not getting into, not getting into Rifra or Employment Division versus Smith or any of that. Stuff, right. Which is an interesting litigation decision. I, I understand the reasons for doing so. I, I think I probably reluctantly agree. It probably is a be easier to argue case on on those grounds. I, here. I'm
1: with you. I, yeah, I had I had my own second thoughts about it too, but I I, I think for the win you got to go where they went. I think I think yeah
2: yeah. He, this, is, this, is kind of, this is the funny thing. So I actually used to be of counsel at First Liberty Institute, which is a, you know, uh, I guess a rival would be the term to, to use. It was kind of a rival of ADF, kind yeah. of a pro, pro-religious liberty nonprofit based in Texas when I was living in Texas. And, you know, I, I from my experience there, I know that your incentives when you're actually litigated than if you're kind of observing it from the bleachers, right? So, yeah. I mean, from, from from a commentator and, you know, dare I say, jurisprudential theorist perspective, I would love to see some new hard-hitting doctrine cutting into employment division versus Smith and getting into all of that juicy stuff. But from a loyalty perspective, they're probably doing the right thing. But anyway, I, I guess from a common good originalism perspective, when I'm looking at a case like this, first of all, I have to kind of start with the bare sense of, understanding that there is no more kind of natural right what kind of natural right out there to say what you want to say within the confines of pursuing truth. Yep. You know I think that yep. that's kind of the richer understanding of speech that you and I have and it's a little bit different when it comes to the libertarians yep. and relativists and yep. so forth there. Yep. But certainly the speech at issue here refusing to kind of put Laurie Smith's personal imprimatur of legitimacy upon a marriage that, according to her tradition and according to natural reasoning, is not actually a marriage. You know, I think any kind of common, good, natural justice-oriented or rooted sense of jurisprudence would certainly say that that has to be constitutionally protected speech, full stop, period, end of story.
1: Yeah, I, that, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. Uh, and I would have thought it would apply whether you argued it as a religious clause case, a, a religion clause case, or a speech clause case. I think it works both ways, if I understand uh, the reasoning behind your theory, Josh. Uh, just one more on that, one more question on this before we get to, uh, to the Twitter issues and the AD, ADL issues. Is there a Supreme Court Justice or set of justices uh, right now currently that you think would embrace much or all of what you're saying? I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure.
2: Well, I think you know the answer because I think you and I agree <laughs> on, on, on this question. Um, so I, I, I think that Sam Alito is really the most underrated justice Me on the too. Supreme Court, and yeah. he's been the most underrated justice basically since the day that he joined the yep. court. Agreed. Because if you remember, around the time that he was getting nominated in 2005, I think was the year, oh five oh six. 506, around then, you know, they nicknamed Sam. Scalito. So like right. referred to kind of That's the Scalia, Alito. And yeah. they both have, you know, they have some biographical similarities, Italians from the Northeast, yeah. Yeah. both Catholic and so forth there. And you know, in his earlier tenure, I think Alito was overshadowed by Scalia. Yeah. And you know, in, in recent years, kind of we had we've had the 30th anniversary of Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court, mm-hmm. you know, a little overshadowed in right of center. Legal uh, circles by by Clarence Thomas, so he's really never gotten his due. Yep. But he is a he is a real force to be recognized. And I think I and I think Sam Alito. Um, there was a very interesting essay written in the old Weekly Standard. Like, I think you can actually still find it online via the Washington Examiner, since they kind of inherited the old Weekly Standard archive after the Standard went belly up in 2018. But there was this wonderful essay written in the year 2013, referring to Justice Alito as the quote. Berkey justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and he, mm. he, he he in in many ways, um, kind of going back to conservatism one hundred and one and so forth. There, I, I think Alito really is the most profoundly and distinctly conservative, traditionalist justice on the course. Clarence I do too. Tommy, I, uh, I think
1: we should start a little club. It probably will be little, but we should start a Sam Alito <laughs> fan club you and I. We could have it by coastal. I, I the music means I got to take a quick commercial break. Let me do that and I'll come right back to you Josh with a little bit more. Yeah. Our guest is Josh Hammer. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek. He is the host of the Josh mm-hmm. Hammer show and a syndicated columnist and a fellow at the Claremont Institute. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Josh Hammer, the opinion editor at Newsweek and host of his own show, The Josh Hammer Show, is uh, joining us. Josh, right before the break, we were just closing out with a thought or two about Sam, Sam Alito's jurisprudence. And uh, I, I didn't mean if you had more on that to, to say more, you're, you're more than welcome to, or we can go to, uh, go to uh, some of the other stuff in the news today.
2: Oh no! Look, I was just saying there that I think Sam Alito is heavily underappreciated, yeah. and and um, you know, Seth, if you and I want to go ahead and start that club, I'm not really sure how many fellow co-travelers. Yeah, we'll have, have five or
1: six. I... We'll start small. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> and we'll be and we'll be very, very, very skeptical of new joiners. It'll be it'll be very hard to get in. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it extremely elite, Josh. That'll really freak out the left. Um. You were on a, you were on another show yet uh, this week. You've been in a lot of media. Uh, you were on Tucker Carlson the other night, talking about what I think is an embarrassment to the name defamation or anti defamation. The Anti Defamation League and their leader Jonathan Greenblatt. Would you would you say a word or two about what you and Tucker were talking about and why? Also, I think you and I would agree that it's a national embarrassment that he heads this organization and that this organization has become what it has.
2: Sure. So the ADL is, historically speaking, one of the oldest, and historically was one of the most esteemed Jewish-related institutions in America. After the tragic lynching of Leo Frank in the state of Georgia in uh, around 1915, I think the year was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the exception of the of ZOA, the Zionist Organization for America, and Maybe the AJC. I can't remember when the AJC was founded, but it is certainly one of the oldest institutions. And mm-hmm. for many, many decades, it was it, it was fairly nonpart. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was liberal and kind of the old school liberal tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly stood for some things that mm-hmm. I would not agree with when it comes to so called separation of church and state, you know, so called two state solution between Israel and its Palestinian Arab enemies and so forth. But it was not progressive. Right. It, it was liberal, but it was not progressive. Right. That really started to change when Abe Foxman, the old head of the ADL, stepped down around 2014 and his successor, who still heads the organization, Jonathan Greenblatt, took over in 2015. Jonathan Greenblatt is a partisan democratic flunky. I mean, full stop, period, end of story. He is no different whatsoever from an Al Sharpton-style shakedown artist. Mm -hmm. He goes around literally collecting money in lieu of a a full apology for anti-Semitism. He offered that exact deal to Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets recently, Mm -hmm. utterly egregious. Mm -hmm. And more generally speaking there, he talks about fighting racism, so-called Islamophobia, all these other bigotries and pseudo bigotries, just as much as he talks about fighting anti-Semitism, which is the founding mission of the anti-defamation, and even when he talks about fighting anti-Semitism, he only talks about it, or at a minimum, only shines a spotlight on it when it's coming from his favored groups for it to come from, meaning white supremacists and white nationalists. He will look the other way when it comes from radical Islamists, black people, Israelites. In fact, Seth, literally just today, I saw a tweet. I haven't had enough time to dig in and see any kind of confirmation here, but I saw a tweet that said that Jonathan Greenblatt was referring to Black Hebrew Israelites. Said that they were forming a quote lesser, less traditional form of Judaism. Yeah, no,
1: like but that. that they are part of the Jewish fold. That's exactly what he said. I think he said it on a uh, on a platform That's that abominable. is hosted Louis I, Farrakhan. I yeah, disgusting. Yeah.
2: Like, like that, that is completely inexcusable, and like the timing. You know, saying this the day after I discussed him this and called him a disgrace to the Jewish people on Tucker Carlson last night is, is unbelievable. Like, what is wrong with this, man? Yeah. I mean, the black people were Israelites is a theologically flawed hate group. They right. shot up a kosher supermarket in Jersey City, New Jersey, three years ago. A freak from there took a machete to hack up a rabbi at a Hanukkah party in Muncie, New York. I mean – Oh my God! Uh, just, just—it's a violent top. cult. It, it, it's, it, it, it's
1: a violent cult, is what it is, and he's giving cover to it. And I, I've kind of come to think of the EDL as long as he's in charge and it's st- and it hews to this kind of positioning. I kind of think it's like the Southern Poverty Law Center quite frankly an organization that may have yeah. had its uses once but has totally lost sight of its mission and is actually doing more harm than good but serves as a good serves as a good whipping uh a whipping boy that the left can drum can beat the drums on to mix the metaphor right pretty close
2: No to- totally I think the ADL and the SPLC is a very good analogy the SPLC Funny enough. actually wrote a very long, like, three to 4,000-word hit piece against me just a few weeks ago. There you so, go. you know, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, well, I'm well aware of the, the <laughs> hit Yeah. And, you know, frankly, the NAACP is not that far. Not I mean far. The, the NAACP also was a venerable civil rights yep. organization that has really lost its way. Yep. And I, I think when you look at a lot of these old-school – liberal organizations, the SPLC, the ADL, the NAACP, the New York Times from a mainstream media perspective, institutions like that, they have been kind of leading indicators of the shift on the American left from liberalism to progressivism or leftism, whatever you want to call it. And that, there's a huge difference there. There's a huge difference. Dennis Prager, to his to his credit, you know, I feel like in a, every column Dennis writes, he kind of drives home this distinction between liberalism and yeah. leftism. Yeah. And the ADL, the SPLC, they have embraced a very distinctly illiberal form of leftism, and Jonathan Greenblatt has been an accelerator. And um, at this point, he is not only not ameliorating anti-Semitism at a time when it is harrowingly uh, increasing across the country, he's actually probably contributing to it. Yeah, and I
1: think so, really especially cheap. with the latest of comments. I have no 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 doubt about that, uh, about the BHI uh, organization. And and I think you're right. I, I think if I'm hearing you right in a sense, too, Jonathan, um, in, 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 Josh, that this country's kind of in need of a civil rights organization that, you know, still would... Uh, adhere to the original civil rights missions of something like the ADL or the NAACP Once Upon a Time. And and that's unfortunate because you look around and, and it's hard to find them. Uh, yeah, okay, you'll find them with uh, on certain issues having to do with religious liberty, if it's the ADF or the organization you used to work with and work for. But it's really a shame uh, that we don't have any more notion of civil rights in the tradition of of, you know, what Jonathan Marshall was doing with the Leo Frank case and creating the ADL or what Martin Luther King and the NAACP were about, or even Thurgood Marshall when he was with the NAACP before he went on the Supreme Court.
2: Definitely. I mean, it's gone to the point where, you know, when I and I think many other people on the right hear the the term civil rights or the phraseology of civil rights, I, I kind of get ready to, yep. to brace myself. Yep. yep. And, it shouldn't be that. No, nope. I, I mean, we, we should all agree on civil rights. There's actually kind of an interesting thing to be drawn here. I, I, ha- I was in a conversation the other day with a friend. I can't quite remember who we were talking about the concept of so-called social justice, uh-huh. which in recent years has become the playing field of the left and not just, uh, you know, the, the mealy mouth that left become the AOC squad, the far left. They mm-hmm. talk about social justice all the time. But there's nothing distinct about the concept of social justice that should be left. The right should have its own view of social justice. We would consider it kind of biblically based, you know, rooted in transcendental order and so forth there. You know, the social justice of the American founding and all of that. But what what the left has very slyly done is they have taken these terms, civil rights, social justice, and they have co-opted them for their own idiosyncratic ends and kind of monopolized the playing field. And, and I think in many ways we on the right have been caught kind of flat footed, and, you know, all the problems of, of of the past 20 years talking about just procedure efficiency, it's not going to cut it. We need our own vision of justice, our own you – know, we have to get back to bare-bones basics.
0: Uh, Josh,
1: what's your schedule like? Do you got to run or do you have five more minutes for me in one more segment? Either way is fine. I want to be respectful of your calendar.
2: Uh, five more minutes is fine.
1: All right. I am Seth Leibson. He is Josh Hammer. He is a syndicated columnist, a fellow at the Claremont Institute, and the opinions editor at Newsweek. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Josh Hammer is our guest. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek. You can, by the way, follow him on Twitter. He has a very active Twitter feed, at Josh underscore Hammer, H-A-M-M. E-R. Josh, I was just thinking, you know, maybe our Samuel Alito Club has found its mission, maybe the Samuel Alito Center for Civil Rights or something. Like maybe maybe we can <laughs> – of course we'd have – he'd probably have to accuse himself if we ever brought something that got up to the Supreme Court. But at least we're getting the form and function of, of, of the concept of our Alito Club that we want to start. Speaking of uh, free speech, First Amendment and civil rights, civil liberties anyway – your your take on what we're learning uh, from the old Twitter, the pre Musk Twitter?
2: Well, it's bad. I mean, it, it it corroborates much of what so many of us suspected, some what so many of us kind of knew. And you know, it, it's almost liberating in a sense to see a lot of it confirms whether it's the draconian measures that Twitter took to suppress the Hunter Biden story in particular this latest round of Twitter files that just broke on Barry Weiss's Twitter feed last night as pertains to kind of the the search algorithm manipulation okay. and banning of accounts like Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, and, and libs of TikTok perhaps most egregiously there. So, you know, look, I mean, I think there, there's a lot of unanswered questions still, though. So first of all, it appears that Jack Dorsey may have straight-up lied to Congress. Yep. He might have perjured himself. Yep. I mean, I mean he, he, he explicitly told Congress, if I'm not mistaken, that Twitter was not banned, yep. that he was not familiar with the content of it. Elon Musk has just totally disproved that. Yep. So I think what some people are starting to say, our friends with the American Principles Project put out a statement. They're calling for Kevin McCarthy, who I presume will be the speaker, mm-hmm. you know, for better or for worse, come mm-hmm. January. Um, uh, he should form a select committee and, 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 and get to the bottom of what has happened here, the 2020 election in particular, because that obviously entails kind of Sovereignty and, and and you know who yeah, is, is controlling uh, our own destiny when it comes to the, to elections and basic integrity and that and all that, but this is important stuff. And that if a select committee of that nature is formed, then certainly its, its jurisdiction could presumably be broad enough to encompass seeing whether these executives actually perjured themselves there. So I think Elon Musk is doing a tremendous public service yeah. right now. And I have to say, I, I had questions for him when he first announced he was yep. buying Twitter last last April. I actually yeah, wrote a yep. column, literally entitled for Elon Musk. Yep. He 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 has lived up to expectations so far. He is doing a bang up job, and I just
1: hope he keeps it up. I agree. It's been it's been a good couple three weeks for Elon Musk, particularly a tough three weeks, and he seems to be hitting hitting almost every question right, almost every serious intellectual question right about what what Twitter should be. Uh, what social media should be, what we should stand for, and equally what we should not stand for. Fair enough?
2: I think it's very fair. And Seth, you had a very inspired monologue that you and I privately messaged about last Friday, where you were defending Elon Musk's decision to uh, uh, ban Kanye West yeah. after his yeah. utterly disgusting image of the swastika and the Magandavi, the, the Star of David, and, um, you know, very much in that Amolito tradition, you and I also see eye to eye on that issue. Yeah. So he does seem to ha- intuitively grok a, 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 a rich kind of thorough conception of free speech. We'll mm-hmm. see if he keeps it up. But right now, kind of holding the speech issue aside, just the Seat right now. I mean, I think I feel like with the public service that Elon Musk is doing. I mean, last weekend he did like a two two and a half hour Twitter Spaces dialogue. Yeah, he was just talking yeah. with a lot of users. Yeah, I mean, he this is the richest guy in the world yeah. who, has, who who bought Twitter basically as kind of a, a of a plaything almost for a cool forty four billion dollars yeah. and so forth. Yeah. and you know he, he he really does seem to now be motivated to try to take what has become the 21st century public square and actually put it to you. So I really do give him credit. And Parenting is just so, so needed right now because in the aftermath of the course of the 2020 presidential election, just to contextualize for the listeners why the Hunter Biden and laptop story matters so much, the post I saw from some organizations such as the Media Research Center where that as many as potentially one in six Biden voters actually told pollsters. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: They told McLaughlin. That's right. That's right. Keep going. This is so important. Make that point.
2: Yeah. As many as one in six Biden voters told pollsters, reputable pollsters, McLaughlin, as you just said, that if they had known about the extent of Joe Biden's corruption with Hunter Biden in places like Ukraine and China, they would have switched their vote to right. Donald
1: Trump, and in battleground yeah. states like Arizona, states that mattered, where, where that that where twenty percent would really matter, eighteen percent would really matter. It would have changed the election, no question.
2: Yeah, I, I, I and publicly for the past two years, because of that reason, I have publicly said that big tech gave the election to Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and I stand. My, and now I feel even more emboldened to say that, of course, uh, because the margin was forty three thousand votes across right. three to four states, yep. and like the math just adds up. It makes sense.
1: That- That's right. Yeah. No, whether whether it's 15, 16, any of it would have been a win. Drives me nuts when I see media people. I saw Geraldo Rivera the other day say, "Okay, so what? It didn't do anything to the 2020 election. It sure as hell damn did. It sure as hell damn did. He just doesn't know the data. And that's the problem with censoring this kind of stuff, too. People don't know it. You know, people don't know it. They didn't see it. Anyway, Josh, I know you got to run. You've been generous with your time as you are generous with your brain. I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate you being with us as always.
2: That's Shabbat
1: Shalom and have a. Thank you, sir. Josh Hammer. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer. H a m m e r Newsweek. He's done an amazing job uh, as the opinion editor over there, along with uh, Botjanger Sargon, who is also a regular guest. Uh, gosh, with people like this, uh, this is this is this is the crank, the Archimedian crank. You can change the world with people like that doing these kinds of things. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, our friends at Y-Refi have an investment opportunity for you. It's in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn the income, your monthly income on or off. You can compound it. Whatever you choose. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, up to a 10 and quarter percent rate of return. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, com, or call them at 888 Y Refi 34. 888 Buy Refi 34. They're just really great guys who love talking about what they're doing. They do well by doing good for others, and you can be a part of that. Uh, you won't get a sales pitch uh, when you talk or meet with them. Uh, they leave that up to us, but they are great guys. Uh, I see them uh, professionally as well as socially. That's how good they are. Okay, um, yeah, that Josh Hammer. He's it's funny. You know, you don't think of um, you don't think of an organ like Newsweek having uh, an editorial page or an editorial section that would be friendly to the conservative movement much less uh shaping of the conservative movement not a lot of people uh, not a lot of not a lot of people know it exists it does and uh not only is Josh uh, the editor of it as i was mentioning another great uh, thinker and writer we don't always agree of course but she is great and and uh one for our team one for our side is uh, Bacha Unger Sargon she's the deputy editor over there so, in all your reading, don't neglect um, Newsweek's opinion page. They have some really interesting stuff over there. Some you'll agree with some you won't yeah that 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 feed that Elon Musk put out that showed what the shadow bounding was that took place is amazing on so many levels, including the liberal left denial even today that it didn't happen um or even the liberal left denial today that we are overstating it, or even the liberal left denial today that we are making something of a standard policy that Twitter had about misinformation and disinformation. But the problem in all of their arguing is that if Twitter followed that policy, it only followed it to target conservatives. It only followed it to target the right. It had no interest and took no uh, effort, made no effort to apply it to liberal left works or thinking. It took no effort and engaged in no effort to shadow ban, oh, the Ayatollah, uh, the Taliban account, uh, Louis Farrakhan's account. Isn't that all so very, very interesting? And yeah, there is uh, now several pieces of documentation from exit polling to other surveys from the Harris Group to McLaughlin. Uh, polling that that does show that people's views of Joe Biden and their intent on voting for him would have been different. They would not have voted for him. One in six, Josh is right, which would be what, about 15, 16 percent, Bill, if my math is right. I I convert that right about 15, 16 percent, a little bit more, maybe Um, would have been easily enough, especially in the battleground states where they did their exit polling. To have changed the election. Uh, And so the dire consequences, the dramatic, that's a better word, the dramatic consequences of what Jack Dorsey uh, was allowing to take place at Twitter, either volitionally. Uh, where he knew or should have known what was going on, especially when he was summoned to Congress so many times to ask about this, which makes you wonder if he literally or truly didn't know why he wouldn't check it out after so many questions and requests to do so by uh, Republican members of Congress. So, yeah, I, I, I think there will be some... There will be some liability there, or at least there could be some liability there. If uh, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy and the new Republican leadership are willing to check it out, are willing to go into it. And I think they should. I think they should. I think that uh, I think the Biden family is up to their neck in corruption. I think they have been covered for. I think there's no question about that. And I think the covers up by social media uh, have demonstrated to have been. To have to have thrown the election, to have thrown the election, irrespective of anything else you want to say or anything else you might believe about the um, the uh, unfairness and the questions about the 2020 election. This is totally legitimate territory to investigate. This is totally legitimate territory to discuss. It's not about election denial. It's about the fact that social media changed an election based on partisan censorship, based on censoring things that we should have known about, that the American people were told they were getting a fair shake and a fair hearing from in public, under oath, under testimony from the masters of social media. Media discussion and dialogue. We were told we were getting a fair hearing. We were told there was no unfairness. We were told there was no ideological censoring. And it has become uh, some and and having relied on their sworn testimony, having relied on it, we were duped. We were duped. It was going on. And this is a big story. It may be really one of the biggest stories um, that will not be taken as seriously by the mainstream media. As it should be, and it won't be taken as seriously by the mainstream media as it should be. Because you know why? A, they agree with it, and B, they do it today. They don't lie about it. They don't lie about it, but it is part of their model. I mean, we know what the New York Times stands for. We know that. They don't lie about it. We just were duped by media organizations, social media organizations that did lie about it and did. Change politics in America, and for that, we have every reason to hold them accountable. Every reason. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, some of your week with us, as uh, we close out uh, our week together. Uh, I I just I was thinking about what I was saying in the last segment about how the liberal left today is saying, oh, no, there was no shadow banning, even even after the revelations that Elon Musk uh, delivered to us uh, over the last uh, 48 hours or so. But, you know, there's no shadow banning, as I said in my monologue to the liberal left, just as critical race theory isn't being taught in our schools, just as. Violence can be peaceful, just as peacefully and patriotically marching can be an insurrection, just as gender changing is actually uh, gender affirming, just as keeping hands off a body is actually having clinicians put your hands in your body, Uh, or just as colorblindness is now racism, or just as now discrimination is anti- Racism, Or just as uh, voter suppression means actually more voters voting, Uh, build back better can mean a worse economy. Uh, You know, the Orwellian doublespeak that the liberal left engages in is what allows them to not only engage in obvious censorship, but in their moral superiority of denial. When we make a charge, they just claim it isn't so because they affix a different name to what it is that they're doing. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's Orwellian doublespeak. And uh, if anything, if anything, one thing I think the conservative movement should stand for, and hopefully the Republican Party can help push it where it can with the likes of people like Jim Jordan heading up investigative committees is restoring the English language to what we all thought the English language was, where words actually mean what they say. It's an important thing about civilization that words actually mean what they say. It's an important thing about humanity. Aristotle distinguished us from the animals because of our ability to use language. We are little less than animals when we distort language and words lose their meaning. That's where tyranny flows. I'm Seth and Have a great weekend until Monday. God bless you all, and class dismissed.